Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Now, what I'm about to say is going to seem really obnoxious to you, given today's circumstances, but January is one of our highest attended months of the year. Now, that was true. You could see that last week, um, but, uh, you know, it's 10 below zero this morning. So, Maybe we don't have the normal attendance that we would normally have, but it is true. January is one of the highest attended months of the year here at Blue Valley, and I think it's pretty easy to guess why. It's time to turn over a new leaf. It's a brand new year. So gyms are filled with people in new exercise clothing, and churches are filled with that new Bible smell uh, because we got new ones for Christmas. But it doesn't take long for the gym clothes to find their way to the Goodwill box and for the Bible to start collecting dust on the shelf and for church attendance uh, to move from in-person to online to online occasionally to never. We want to change. We, we want to grow spiritually. We want to follow Paul's instruction to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We want to follow Paul's instructions to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, uh, bearing fruit in every good work. And yet we find ourselves constantly, don't we, returning to regular programming. Uh, The Bible has a more descriptive phrase of it, a dog returning to its vomit. So why? Why do we do this? Well, that's what our message today is about. I began today with the words of prophecy spoken by the priest Zechariah concerning his son. And in our passage today from Luke chapter 3, that prophecy begins to be fulfilled in his son's life. We know Zechariah's son uh, by a name very familiar to us, John the Baptist. Now, when we hear the word Baptist, we tend to think of a denomination. But for John, it was a description of what he did. John was called the Baptist because he baptized people. But even that requires some explanation, so let's use the Scriptures to help us figure that out. If you would, please find verse 1 of Luke chapter 3, where we will be spending our time this morning, and look at verse 1 and 2. In the 15th year... Of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconius, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, during the reign or during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. All of that means absolutely nothing to you. I get that. It shouldn't mean anything to you. Those dates and figures are completely outside of our frame of reference. But basically what we're being told is this. Uh, John the Baptist began his ministry sometime between 28 and 29 A.D. 
It's impossible to be more precise than that because of how uh, different historians of the time uh, measured the reign of Roman rulers and because there's a lot of overlap in the other uh, reigns of the men who are mentioned. It's just important to see right now that sometime in 28 or 29 A.D., John did this. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy and the prophecy of Isaiah that Zechariah alluded to when he was speaking these words over his infant son, John began his ministry to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah by proclaiming, it says, a baptism of repentance. So how are we to understand that? Well, first of all, as something completely new to the Jewish culture to which John was preaching. Now, it is true that the Old Testament does teach a, a kind of ritual immersion in water as symbolic of being cleansed from certain kinds of defilements that would keep a person from worshiping in the temple. And it's also true that in the 500 or so years prior to Christ, new converts to Judaism went through that same cleansing as a kind of entrance rite into Judaism. But that's not what this was. That's not what John the Baptist was doing. His was a radical call for the Jewish people to admit that they were sinners worthy of God's judgment and to repent, which was radical because Jewish people thought of themselves as belonging to God by virtue of their ethnicity, uh, by their DNA. God's wrath was for the rest of the world, but it was none of their concern so far as they thought. And to quote John Piper, John's baptism was a call for the Jews to admit that they were sinners and needed to get right with God and to admit that being Jew was no guarantee of being what you and I would call saved. So, so the repentance then was in their renouncing their dependency on their Jewish DNA to be right with God. And that pictures what repentance is. Is It is a turning from one thing radically to another. John's baptism was turning from a confidence in their Jewishness and turning to a reliance on God's mercy for salvation. John's baptism was an act of repentance and a demonstration of the need for God's mercy. And that's how his ministry paved the way for Jesus and his message. Christ's message was for all people to repent of their sin and to look to him exclusively for the mercy of God that saves. Let me say it again. John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to prepare the way for Jesus. 
But how does that relate to us? It goes back to our desire for, for change and, and our frequent failures in achieving lasting change. We've all heard the phrase, haven't we? What would Jesus do? Worn the bracelet, maybe. Read the, the book that uh, is the birthplace of that phrase. That phrase calls us to view Jesus as a kind of moral example. And so to ask when faced with a moral decision, what would Jesus do? And then all we have to do upon asking that question is to do that thing. Simple, right? Well, of course not. And the reason is because that doesn't invite us to repent. There's no real turn. Without a basic rejection of sinful behavior and an embrace of the new life Jesus makes possible, change of any real consequence is fundamentally impossible. I want to say that again. Without a rejection of our sinful lives and an embrace of the new life Jesus makes possible, change of any real consequence is fundamentally impossible. Let me use the example of church attendance that I began at the, end, at the beginning of today's message. You've turned over a new leaf in 2024, and look at you. You've been here for two whole weeks in a row. But this week was harder than last week because we didn't have donuts and because it's 10 below zero. And I've got news for you. Next week, even if it's warmer, is going to be harder than this week. And pretty soon, maybe today, the message won't be all that good. Or, or you won't be feeling the music and the weather will once again be very cold and dreary and some of that or all of that will conspire to cause you to stay home that week. And before you know it, would you look at that? It's Easter. What happened? You sought to change your habits, nothing more, in order for your church attendance commitment to be different, you have to reject not the lack of commitment to attend, but reject the spiritual sloth that is characterizing your life and to embrace the joy of gathering with God's people to celebrate His goodness to you. That's not the same thing as deciding to go to church on the regular, not by a long shot. Here's what might help. Repentance isn't a choice between this thing and that better thing. That's, that's how we tend to think of it. This is not all that great. This is better. I'll choose that. That's repentance. No, repentance is a radical turn from one thing to the only thing that you can do in response to God's call to obedience in our lives. And we see this in John's dealing with the crowds who came to him for baptism. I'm going to show you just two things today. That's how crazy today is. Not three, two. Here's the first one. Turn, John was saying, from pride to sorrow. Pride to sorrow. Look at verse 7. 
He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him. Hey, I hear a guy's doing some really cool things out there. Everybody's going. It's kind of a revival. Would be super exciting, kind of a spiritual pick-me-up. Why don't we go to see him? What does the preacher do when everybody gets there? He says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't just come out here saying you want a spiritual pick-me-up. Change, repent, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now... The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Clearly, John knew how to win friends and influence people, right? I mean, his opening line, for crying out loud, was likening those coming to him as snakes. Fleeing a grass fire, slithering away from the fiery judgment as fast as they could. But what is it that makes them so snaky? It's right there in verse 8. Look at that again. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say for yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We've already talked about the pride the Jews had in their ethnicity, believing that they were preserved from the wrath of God by virtue of their birth, by their DNA. But God says that the conduct of their lives was at odds with what they supposed their relationship with God to be. Their lives, in spite of their profession and even confidence, lacked fruit consistent with repentance. What does that mean? Well, think of it as lying on your resume. Let's say that I came to you looking for a job, and I told you that I had been to Oxford, but you found out that I didn't mean that I had attended school at Oxford. You found out instead that I went there and bought a sweatshirt. Would you trust my ability to do your job? Of course not, because visiting Oxford and buying a sweatshirt isn't the same thing as attending Oxford. The people believed that they were secure in their relationship to God because of their DNA, but their actual lives bore no evidence of God's life. The pride that they felt by virtue of their DNA should have been replaced, John is saying, with sorrow over their utter lack of commitment to God. They were coming out saying, we're going to add this to our spiritual resume. And John is saying, your resume stinks. It's worthless. And what you're coming to me for will be of no use until you renounce all of that. John says, God can make rocks into children of Abraham for crying out loud. As it was, their real lack of commitment to God had placed them on the verge of the same fate 
as a barren fruit tree, ready to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And they didn't know it because of their pride. The reason that pride is perhaps the deadliest of all spiritual maladies is that it creates a confidence in our spirituality that gets in the way of our repentant sorrow. And in my line of work, I've seen it up close. One of my top moments of ministry frustrations and heartbreak was working with a person who was in deep, open, and decades-long sin. It finally found them out and began to dismantle everything about their lives. And they were transparent about the sin, even would call it sin, would even express regret over the sin, but they'd never repent of it. I'd finally had it and told them that if I were to do their funeral, I'd have no confidence that they were in the arms of Jesus. And this person got offended. How dare I question the salvation of a person who'd done so much good church and religious stuff. And they got up and left that conversation. Their pride had gotten in the way of their repentance. They were using their religious resume to paper over the utter lack of evidence of the Father's authority and the Son's salvation and the Spirit's activity in their lives. And as a result, they were failing to see that the acts of judgment was laid at the root of the tree of their lives. That's what Luke means when he says, John said, every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Say what you want. Point with pride to your church accomplishments and your activities. But if there is no fruit in your life, you do not belong to Jesus. And that's easy for you to say, Derek, that sounds judgmental. And you better believe it is. Because we are called as God's people, His authority on earth. You understand that? His delegated authority on earth to look at the lives of people who call the community of the church their church and deduce whether or not the evidence proves, demonstrates that they belong to Jesus. You understand that's what membership is? Membership is not you saying, I like the programming here. I think I'll sign up. Membership is you joining with a group of people who have looked at your life and said on the, on the basis of their testimony and the fruit of their lives, we believe they belong to Jesus. That's what John is saying. John is saying, in spite of how good you feel about your religiosity, you're about to be consumed with fiery judgment. And in order to be able to escape it, you've got to turn from pride to sorrow. But here's another turn in our verses. It's the turn from self to others. 
self to others. Uh, look at verse 10 again. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What, what are we supposed to do? John, John the Baptist had just said the key to knowing whether or not you've truly repented is to look at the character of your lives, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not looking at your spiritual resume. So the question, what then shall we do, is essentially tell me what to look for. I mean, everything that, that I've always counted on I, you're telling me I can't count on. So what should I look for in, in my life? How will we know if our hearts have truly changed? So Luke records for us different versions of that same question coming from three different groups of people. And all of the answers are essentially the same. You'll know when you put others first. Look at the first one with me. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. John is saying, if you're truly repentant, you will not be callous to the needs of the poor. It's not a radical idea. It's, it's not a new idea that John is teaching, but one which is, frankly, embedded in the DNA of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the entire Judeo-Christian ethic. In Jewish thought, the care for the poor is an example of what was called works of love, which go beyond works of law, what is commanded. Works of love were thought to be those things that characterize true repentance. So John is saying here that part of bearing fruit of repentance is showing an active concern for the well-being of those less fortunate. That's his first Answer. Now, now let's look at the next group's question and read the Baptist's answer. Look at verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? Of what, this is another way of looking at it, of what are we to repent? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And in this tax season, the entire church says, Amen. Tax collectors in the Roman world were notoriously corrupt. As we'll see in the case of a tax collector named Zacchaeus, when we get to Luke 19, they frequently took more than what they were commissioned to take by Rome and to keep the excess for themselves, and Rome didn't care as long as they got theirs. So John the Baptist told tax collectors coming for baptism that the evidence they had truly repented would be their refusal to exploit others for personal gain. And do you remember the, the, the story of the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see? After he met with the Lord, he came out and he said, if I have stolen from you, I'll repay it fourfold. What is he doing? Exactly what John the Baptist said that a tax collector who was truly repentant would do. They would make it right, those that they had defrauded. They would refuse to exploit others for their personal gain. Now we come to the last group. Look at verse 14. Soldiers asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. The soldiers in mind here were not Roman soldiers, but those who worked in enforcement for the Jewish king and Roman puppet Herod. Their proximity in the text of the tax collector 
is a nod to the relationship they had with one another. The soldiers were the ones sent out by tax collectors to collect. Their wages were low, so they would frequently shake down those being taken advantage of by the tax collectors for even more money. So here's how it would work. Soldiers would go out, get their cut, reserve the cut that the tax collector had asked, give it to him, and then the tax collector would give it to Rome, all of it to shake down the poor. And John the Baptist says, if you've truly repented, you will not do that anymore. So there are three examples of what repentance looks like here. And in all three examples, we see a turning from self-interest to prioritizing the needs of others. And, and sometimes because we read a scripture text in isolation, we fail to see how all of this works together. What we're, we're really being told here is what Jesus himself says, that the outworking of our love for God will show itself as. It will show as a love for our neighbor. If you love God, Jesus said, you will put others first. And he is just summarizing the teaching of the Old Testament. And in the three examples John gives, the needs of those who the powerful frequently victimized were put above self-interest. And the real danger here is to default to our legalism and say, well, you know what? I need to, I need to help people more. I just need to be nicer. I need to, I need to maybe give something to those people that I see on the street corners begging or I need to volunteer for Mission Southside or something like that. But there is something deeper here, more foundational. And it's the key to everything. And if you miss it, you'll leave here thinking that the call of John the Baptist was for us to be nice to people. And so you'll do exactly what you've always done to change. You'll uh, attempt to change your habits and start trying to be nice. But a bad day in traffic or at the office will blow all that up. No, what John the Baptist is doing here is bellowing. It is not what you do. It is who you are. And who you are is who you turned to. He is not telling them to renounce their habits. He's telling them to renounce their lives and embrace the new life that repentance makes possible. So what have we learned here today? We've learned that repentance is a change of heart, not a change of habit that leads to a change of action. What we want to do is change our action and think it will change our heart. John is saying, change your heart, not your habit, and that will change your action. So we do not change by simply adopting new habits. New habits typically go the way of goodwill boxes full of workout clothes and dusty Bibles on shelves. Instead, we change our heart, or more correctly, we let Jesus change our heart. John the Baptist prepared the people for this reality. 
And today I hope he has prepared our heart for the same reality. I want you to think about what in your life right now, on the spiritual level, that you struggle with. I just want you to think, what is it? And now I want you to assess what you've done to take care of that. And most often, uh, let's, let's just say that you struggle with materialism. And I'm, I'm speaking as a, a guilty offender there. I mean, we, we live in one of the wealthiest places in the world, and all of us are, are very susceptible to that. And we typically think, well, you know what? Rather than spend as much, I'm going to save more. Is that repentance? No. That's not repentance. That's a change of your habit. But when I understand that when I'm addicted to stuff, I am, I am saying to the world, I need all of this, and if I add Jesus to it, I'm okay. That's what we're saying when we say things are that important to me. But if we will then say, you know what? Things have a hold on my heart to where, to where if, if Jesus was basically a, a weekend side hustle, I can be fulfilled in life. Then it doesn't matter how much you save. Your heart's still not where it needs to be. John is saying that our hearts need to be surrendered to Jesus. That we need to, as John says, the gospel writer in John 15, that we need to be so connected to him that you could picture it as a branch abiding at a vine so that his life begins to flow through us and Jesus himself begins to change us. That he begins to remake us into his image. That's a long way from changing some habits. That's allowing your life to become a vehicle for the life of Jesus in this world. And that is how you change. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.